episode of the Grape to Glass podcast. Today, we get to talk about the exciting roles and responsibilities in wine production. There are many important aspects and jobs and pieces that is needed, that need people to pay attention to throughout the winemaking. And it definitely is one of those businesses or endeavors that takes a village, is a serious understatement, I think, in wine production. When it comes to focusing on all the little pieces, that's our plan today is to mainly focus on the seller, right? Yeah. So when it comes to winemaking and wineries, there are many jobs within the company that kind of intermingle or overlap with wine production. That could be hospitality, that could be marketing in some way, bottling. But for this episode, we will just be focusing on wine production and harvest. We are here and we are aiming to break the facade of how winemakers are shown and presented and continue to deconstruct the romance behind winemaking. Yeah, you know, that's a good point because, you know, sometimes when I was the winemaker, I would have to mid-harvest, I remember going to my office, changing it to a polo shirt just merely to go out and pour wine for some VIPs and stuff who are out on the tasting room patio or whatever during harvest. And I would be thrown on a polo shirt to just merely walk back out to the press so I could talk to people about pressing grapes who were big buyers and wine club members and stuff like that, you know, to look better because we want to present the story of that romance. That is definitely part of what wineries try to do it. And they're very successful at it. But God knows as a winemaker, I'm not walking around in a nice clean polo shirt all the time. Maybe I can keep it clean for 30 minutes during harvest. But that's kind of what we're here to talk about is we're going to break down the pieces and what is required for the different jobs that are needed and stuff like that. But there are some notes that we got to tell you guys about for this episode in particular. Yeah, so some important things to know as we just go through this episode is while Joe and I have worked in all of these positions in some way, one way or another, we do not claim to be experts and we are not claiming that all of these positions are the same for every winery. These are just the main jobs that most wineries have and jobs that we have worked. All of these jobs will vary on the size of the winery and the demand, and these descriptions are not definite. Most jobs may require a person to tackle two or more of these jobs, whereas some wineries will have two people doing the same job. These jobs will overlap in some way, and this all depends on the size of the winery. And these job titles don't technically mean anything when it comes to winemaking. They are just titles. It is always important when starting a new job in a new position to get a full understanding of what your job entails and the roles you will be performing. You don't want to start a job as a lab tech thinking that that's what you're going to be doing and then spend over half the time in the cellar. Whereas you also shouldn't expect your job to just be one job either. If you think you're getting hired as a seller master, you will also be out in a seller doing seller work with the seller hands. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. As far as my jobs have been in small wineries, I've worked as the winemaker, assistant winemaker, enologist position. And I only had one or two other people working under me in the cellar so I had like a cellar master enologist and then cellar hand mechanic type positions just because in small wineries we don't necessarily have the budget to do that 
But for example, like at large wineries, I'm talking really large wineries, similar to what Colby works at, they have multiple winemakers and sometimes they'll have assistant winemakers and really split the responsibilities that way. And that is a good thing to note, Colby, that when you are getting a job or getting hired on by a job, there might be more to it than just what's in that job description that you're applying for. And, you know, I always take, I've been in lots of interviews in the wine industry for jobs because we change jobs quite frequently or quite a bit sometimes until you find your home winery. And there's always that question at the end of interviews, what questions do you have for me? And if that wasn't answered, like definitely be that person. What might some of my other responsibilities be? Where do you see me at? Because some large wineries like Chateau St. Michel, big giant wineries, their cellar masters have an office and a whole place. And sometimes you might be more in the office, but if you're more of a hands-on, mechanically inclined person, that might not be the place for you. Smaller wineries would be a chance for you to get your hands dirty more often than not. So yeah, lots of gray blending and everything in, that's going to be in these jobs. But let's start off with some more roles within winemaking that you'll likely see at most wineries. Let's start with Cellar Master. This guy is key. This is, as I like to say, he is the physical arm of the winemaking role. He kind of has the admin side is some of the tougher role for a lot of these cellar masters to do because cellar master most often than not in wineries is promoted from cellar hand to cellar master because the winery wants you to stick around. You got to know that building and that equipment inside and out, literally inside and out. So on admin, they're going to oversee and train seller hands. That Those seller hands are their responsibility. They're going to need to be that person to make sure that they're trained properly on the equipment. Because like I said, you definitely are going to need to know that winery inside and out. They are in the cellar, the chief sanitation officer, as I like to put it, the CSO, knowing and setting the process for sanitation in a cellar, wine cellar, Cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. We are creating environments for things to grow, bacteria, molecules, mold, slime, everything else. If you could think of it, it's going to be found in that cellar. It will. In college, I remember doing the little biology swab tests, and we found staphylococcus in there. That's what staph infections, streptococcus, which that's strep throat, you know, that sort of thing, grows well in drains of wineries and around tanks. Stuff like that. And we're not even using those things to inoculate or put into wine. I would be happy to find yeast around wine things, but we're not using those things. Yeah. And just because we find these things in the winery, they are not in your wine. So if you're drinking your wine, don't think that there is going to be some kind of bacteria like that in your wine. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll say right now, we do before bottling micron filtration, meaning we take the wine filter down to like 0.2 to 0.4 microns, I believe. And so those bacteria and stuff and viruses are bigger than that. So that's where you can have your clean conscience on what you're drinking is those microbes are too big to get through our filtration. But with the cellar master, if you have a barrel cellar, not all wineries, large wineries sometimes don't have used barrels. We'll, we'll get to that in future episodes as well. But they are in charge of organizing and maintaining barrel inventory and again, barrel sanitization, physical barrel sanitization. They're in charge of making sure that's done properly and that those barrels are stored properly. Because the other people in the org chart, I guess, that we're developing here don't have time. That's, they can't go and double check all these jobs. And that's one thing that, that I'd like to establish, you know, kind of at the early point of this podcast. 
this episode is that we really try to go, they know their job, they're going to go do it because there just isn't enough time for all these people to get double checked on. When they train seller hands, they're also monitoring the seller processes. There is most or every winery has standard operating procedures for most of the things that they do, even down to transferring wine, how it's done. And whether it's written down or not, really the physical operating procedures are agreed upon between the winemaker and the assistant winemaker. And sometimes the seller master has input on those because they might have a process in their head of how this should work. And he's going to go, here's the reality of how it's going to work. And a good, I think a good winemaker, assistant winemaker is going to take that into account and go, okay, let's talk about how it physically is going to work. Because he's going to know, hey, we're going to have to put a valve here. We're going to have to split things here. If I'm going between two tanks, here's how we're going to actually need to do it. And so he's going to know those procedures inside and out. And obviously when he's training seller hands, he's going to give them his little tips and tricks of how to make their job more efficient. And I, I think that's pretty key and it's good for a good seller master to know. He's going to be in charge of making sure that the work orders are completed each day. So the tasks that are going to be set down from the assistant and the winemaker, or even the enologist, are going to need to be executed. And he's in charge of the physical arms of the winery. And so that's going to be his job to make sure that admin side of things is done. And he's also going to need to create maintenance schedules. All this equipment, wineries are full of equipment, pumps, presses, stemmers, you know, for hard setup. He's the guy in charge of making sure that those schedules are executed on time. Because if that's not done, then we get into the thick of harvest. You don't want your press wasn't adequately greased up at the right time or point. And so it's all gummed up and something breaks. Smaller wineries that have one press, you don't want that thing to go down in the middle of your harvest. And you have to wait a week, maybe longer for a mechanic to come out because he's busy. It's harvest. He's busy at all these other wineries. And so because of your bad planning or lack thereof, that equipment goes down. Now you have fruit rotting on the vine. All that, It's really going to set things back. And so it's his job to make sure that we're ready to go at all time. He's kind of the main mechanic for the winery. Like when I was a cellar master, I could tear apart a pump back together. I could diagnose a lot of pump problems. Like even at my last position, when I was doing the consulting work, one of the cellar hands came to me and was like, this pump just locked up. I don't know what to do. From my seller master experience, took the front off the pump and oh, we had found a metal piece of wire from the vineyard. Had gotten clear into the tank and when we were transferring the wine, it slid and jammed up the pump. And knowing those things, being able to diagnose, oh, that pump is vibrating still, so it still has, the motor still works, but this might have happened, that sort of thing. And then from there, there's the physical Part of the seller master. You know, Kobe could tell you, I mean, 90% of seller work nowadays is done on the forklift. You know, it's a lot. From being the winemaker and in the lab so much, one of my biggest pet peeves, and I know Colby also would probably agree with this, is maintenance of the valves on tanks, the tasting ports, just cleaning those things out after you move wine or juice in or out or even pull a sample because those things get nasty. And if you pull that sample and you don't clean that valve first, sanitize, I shouldn't even say clean. It needs to be sanitized. It's really easy to sanitize it. You're gonna pull whatever acetic acid or whatever bad bacteria is growing, bad flavors are happening in that little juice in the valve. You're gonna taste that, or you're gonna send that off to be tasted. 
by the winemakers, they're going to think that something could be way more wrong with it than what it is. Yeah. And not only that, but during harvest, when we have seeds and grapes in tanks, if you don't clean those valves out properly, you can get stuff stuck. You can have leaking valves. Even today, I can't pull a sample out of this one tank because they didn't properly take apart the valve, the sample port, and there's still a seed stuck in there. So I have to do extra work. Thankfully, I get my own attachment sample port that I just put on one of the valves and pull that way. But it's an extra 15 minutes out of my day just to get this one sample. So it's cleaning and sanitizing and doing everything properly is an important part of not just keeping the wine clean, but also keeping everyone productive. Yeah, that 15 minutes of Kobe's time is valuable as the enologist need to pull that sample or as even the cellar master, if he's the one pulling that sample, he's going to get annoyed and have a hard time pulling that sample. Like she said, tearing those valves apart is crucial because you there are parts that can wear out because you don't clean it properly. That seed can break a seal or an O-ring in that valve. And if that valve is the only, I guess, line of defense between 10,000 gallons being in a tank and 10,000 gallons being out of a tank, you don't want that little rubber O-ring to fail or that the nut on top of the valve handle to be loose so the butterfly valve flips open. That's a lot of head pressure pushing against that little valve and just proper maintenance on those things is pretty crucial. The cellar master in... Small wineries might be in charge of setting up the bottling line, again, sanitizing the bottling line, making sure that bottling line in filters are in line and ready to go, making sure as the winemaker wants that the appropriate tank is hooked up and ready to be bottled. Because that's a a rough surprise to a winemaker to have packaged a completely different tank. And it's completely illegal to package that because we would, as a winery, have to go through and empty all of those bottles. That's an expensive thing to put Pinot Noir into a Syrah bottle. You can't just say, oh, it's Pinot Noir or, oh, it's Syrah. You have to be accurate. The government requires you to be accurate. And so that's pretty crucial, even on a cellar master. Sometimes you need to be the double check guy and go through and make sure that the correct tank is hooked up before you start putting that wine into the bottling line. He's also in charge during bottling of staging the packaging and the bottles. The way bottling lines work in most wineries, I mean, I've seen elaborate bottling lines. You got, you still got to have somebody pulling the bottles and putting them on the bottling line or into the device that puts them on the bottling line. And you got to make sure it's the right ones because sometimes if you're bottling more than one wine in a day, so a lot of wineries utilize a bottling truck that comes in that they rent for the day and it comes in and it bottles their wine. If you're utilizing that truck, that's a lot of money And you definitely are going to bottle more than one wine as a smaller winery, more than one wine in one day. So you've got to make sure you have the right bottles, the right labels, and everything is staged right. That's the cellar master's job. That's what I, as a a winemaker, assistant winemaker, would definitely lean on the cellar master to make sure those boxes are checked and ready to go and that everything's in line for that to be executed. Knowing that stuff off the top of your head creates efficiency. And that's the cellar master's job. And that a lot of the cellar master's job. And Colby can tell you this because her dad was kind of in a cellar master position for a lot of her life. It's just experience. It's just getting to know that winery. Hence why most of the time, cellar master is going to be promoted from that cellar hand. Talking about cellar hands, that'll put us into what they do. So with a cellar hand, 
they are under supervision. They perform various work assignments, including wine movement, additions, barrel work if there's barrels. And they also help direct the less skilled workers or the harvest interns. 90% of winemaking is cleaning. And nobody realizes that until they actually start working in a winery and making sure that everything that you touch that is going to go onto a valve, that is going to touch wine or juice or whatever it is, has to be sanitized before you start. If you grab something like a clamp off of the, the parts board and you don't clean it before, you don't know how long it's been sitting there collecting dust, collecting yeast that's in the air, whatever it is. You want to make sure that everything you touch and use is sanitized before and after. There's a lot of barrel work depending on what winery you work for. My last winery, we were only barrels. The only time we ever used tanks was for harvest during fermentation and then for blending before bottling. That was it. Everything that we ever had was in barrels. So Barrel work is very important and very meticulous. Most high-end, higher-end wineries will use barrels, and every barrel is different. That's exactly right. I think my last winery, we pushed six, 700 barrels, and she's exactly right. You could have a lot of wine. Let's say your 2019 Pinot Noir is in barrel. Each barrel is going to be different. The barrel work and sanitization of that is super key because, again, so much wants to grow and live in the winery in the air but, let uh, alone wood right and that wood. attracts wood. even more bacteria even more bugs everything and wood is like i like to put it the reason we put even put wine nowadays in oak or cherry or acacia or whatever people want to choose to put their wine in is because wood is a sponge we want the flavors of the wood yeah and we can definitely get into barrels and barrel work in another episode since you and i have both worked very closely with barrels oh i love barrels and then, so the next one would be racking. That is just when we have settling of lees, pumice, any kind of like yeast, whatever, will settle to the bottom of a tank. We rack off the clean wine from the top of that. That's what racking quick, is. because people might not know, I just want to make clear, lees is any of the solids that might settle out of a wine. Wine clarifies itself pretty well. Lees can be grape skin seeds, leaves, pieces of bugs, all sorts of things that might settle to the bottom. And we frequently will, at some points during the winemaking process, pull off the clean juice, leave that nasty stuff at the bottom, and either throw it out. A lot of wineries throw it out. Some wineries filter it. But we will definitely get into those processes later. But just a quick definition. And then we have topping. That is just topping up any kind of headspace in tanks or barrels. We don't want headspace that causes spoilage or can cause spoilage. We want everything to be topped up with no room for growth. And then any kind of sulfur adds that is also for tanks and barrels. And then like Joe mentioned earlier, forklifting. Forklifting is a very big thing and all the seller hands need to be forklift certified and trained and comfortable on a forklift. Competency is huge, especially going back to barrel work. I don't know many wineries nowadays that function without their barrels on racks, these metal racks that are meant to pick up barrels with forklift because full barrels are heavy. You're not going to move them by yourself. The liquid weighs a lot. So we put two on a rack. There are some four barrel racks that can be used forklifts, but sometimes these forklifting jobs by these seller hands 
you're driving down an aisleway that is literally a forklift width wide to pick up some barrels. And if you bump the racks next to you, sometimes those are, I think at my last winery, they were 10 barrels high and those will rock. The liquid will slosh. That's literally what's sitting on the floor next to you as you drive down. I have seen barrels slip off the racks and fall off the racks. I'm sure there'll be all sorts of fun. I'll have all sorts of fun stories because I, I feel like with barrels, if it's gone wrong, I have definitely seen it. So it'll be fun. If you are nervous about driving a forklift, a seller hand job is not for you. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's all about confidence. And I don't forklift very often. And my first time forklifting in like probably a year at my winery here, the winemaker was like, all right, hop on, let's grab those bins of grapes and let's start dumping them. And I look at her and I was just like, I haven't driven a forklift in probably a year. And I've never carried a bin of grapes before. What if I drop it? And she was like, well, we just won't look. We just won't pay attention. And (laughs) I I had to do it. And I just hopped on and I just did it with confidence. And even the truck driver asked if I had forklift experience because he was pretty impressed. You just kind of have to do it. It is very scary to begin with, but it is one of the most important things of winemaking. And then from that, the seller hand is also able to execute equipment maintenance if they are available. I know that my last winery, we were much smaller and our seller hand was very hands-on with equipment maintenance. He was our maintenance person as well. He was a seller hand and our maintenance guy. And if anything stopped working, any kind of issues, he was the one to go to. And that's not for every winery or every person. It's just if you have the experience or if you have the knowledge already, or if you want to know more about your equipment, I highly suggest that you know your equipment in and out. Whether you're going to be in the cellar for a year or six years, if you know how that equipment works from each individual piece and how to put it together, that will just make you an even stronger cellar person. Especially the parts where that touch wine. That's a good excuse, I think, as a seller hand or seller master or really anybody uh, who's working in a winery to tear something apart, tear it apart, put it back together, have somebody help you. You know, we all have cell phones to take some pictures or whatever, but like a pump I tore apart last year, I could tell when I pulled it apart that that pump that got jammed, it had not been cleaned inside in a long time. And little bits of wine, they will leak, they'll leak past the O-rings a little bit, but it's a good excuse to get to know that equipment inside and out. And and you can clean it up and put the lubrication back where it needs to go. And that pump's going to run 10 times smoother for you. And just as a seller hand, I know your seller master and or the winemakers are going to love the initiative. I don't know many wineries that are going to mind you tearing apart a pump to clean it when obviously there's available time and stuff like that. And during the off season, there's available time, obviously not during the thick of harvest and that sort of thing. I wouldn't recommend that, but yeah, knowing that equipment. Yeah. And that also will help you know the why behind each pump that we use. You're going to be a supervisor for those harvest interns and they're going to ask you, why am I using this pump? What's the point? Why can't I use this other pump? And they're going to go to you for any kind of issue they have or how to run a pump. They're not going to know how to run a pump and you need to know how those work and why they work the way they do. That's just going to make you a better leader and just a better seller hand. You're going to know the process of winemaking easier. It's just going to make more sense to you that way. And then aside from equipment and harvest, you will also 
most likely be helping out with bottling. That depends on the size of the winery and if the winery has a bottling line or not. Like Joe mentioned earlier, some wineries will rent a bottling truck and that sometimes will come with temporary workers that will do it for you where all you have to do is attach the tank to the bottling line and let it go and just go on with the rest of your work or you will be there helping and putting on caps and double checking labels putting them in boxes it just depends on the winery but bottling is another aspect where it's probably not in your job title your job description there may be a whole bottling production side, but seller hand is most likely going to help with bottling in some way or another. And then organizing, you don't want to just throw things around. Winery equipment is very expensive. The clamps and gaskets that we use are very expensive and they might not seem like a whole lot to you. So just throwing them in a bucket to clean them later, you will eventually damage those pieces and you won't realize it. And then by the end of the week, you'll have three buckets of parts that you don't know where they go to. And someone else is going to be running around looking for that specific part. They don't know where it's at and it's not in the shelf that it's supposed to be. Organization is a very big deal, well, especially from being a lab side of it where everything has to be organized. I'm a little OCD with it. I think organization and uh, sanitization are the two top things when it comes to winemaking and wineries. And a seller hand is the one that has to be executing it properly for everybody. If someone, if the lab tech comes in and they need to pull a sample, they need that extra sample valve for some reason. It needs to be in the spot that it's supposed to be in because if they can't find it and there's only one, then they can't do their job. Right. I don't know how many times, I couldn't even count how many times as winemaker late at night, I'm helping out in the cellar to help them get these tanks strung together to do a transfer. And I walk between two or three different pegboards and there's no two inch clamps on the pegboards. And I spend 30 minutes trying to find the buckets or the pump that it basket that they're sitting on to use them. And I know for sure that our winery owns 300 of these two inch clamps, but literally I can't find any of them. Now, I'll bet most of them are probably on hoses being used, but I know for sure that there's probably enough for there to be 20 or 30 sitting on a pegboard somewhere. And Kobe's right, they get tossed in a bucket. Or some of these valves and clamps are dropped on concrete. Well, they're steel and aluminum, and eventually they will get cracked, form micro fissures, and wine is still liquid. It's going to protrude. The job of all this equipment and all of these pieces and hardware is to keep liquid inside of things, not let it leak out, because every gallon that hits the floor is, what, three bottles of wine. And so, yeah, the equipment and organizing it and keeping it straight Kobe's completely right, especially from the lab side, which let's dive into that at this point. And Kobe's the expert right now because she literally does this daily. Let's move out of the cellar and we will move into the laboratory. Yeah. So the other side of winemaking, and this is objective, but some may say the parallel levels is for a cellar hand would be a lab tech. This is just another way to move up to becoming a winemaker with a different approach. This path does require more skills, chemistry, math, biology, and most wineries will ask for some sort of higher education. That is not always required, but most wineries and most 
job postings I have seen or jobs that I've applied for require a college degree of some sort. The lab tech will be performing lab analysis that includes pH, TA, free sulfur. We'll get into like the nuts and bolts of that in another episode because I could talk about that for a whole nother hour. And the lab analysis really depends on the winemaker. Some winemakers may base everything off of a specific analysis that you're running, where others may think another number is more important in your winery. It just depends on what winery you work for. And also some wineries will have you do more analysis in-house, whereas smaller wineries mostly can't afford to have those equipment in-house. So they'll send it to ETS, which is a laboratory that does all types of lab analysis. And that is- Specifically for wine. And I think they're mostly West Coast of the United States, I think. If they're in Australia or Europe, somebody let us know because I don't. But from what I've seen, they're mostly California, Oregon, Washington. And they will help out with any kind of testing. They can do just about anything you could possibly imagine for testing. I know with 2020 and the smoke and the fires, ETS was running a lot of smoke trials on vineyards and wine just to see how that smoke, how those fires affected the grapes and the wine itself, they can do that. And it's been really helpful. It's a really cool process too. And even large wineries utilize some of these outside laboratories. ETS is kind of a private one. Up here in the Tri-Cities of Washington, sometimes we utilize the university that has the winemaking research center because like Kobe was saying, smoke tank, there's not a lot of research on it. There's a few tests for developing or for seeing the molecule, if it's the specific molecule that makes smoke taint or molecules that make smoke taint. And she's right. Even large wineries don't have the ability to get these machines that can identify specific molecules. Those are seven to $10 million sometimes. Large wineries are not going to put out that kind of money. That's even for, I mean, it would only be considered by a very large winery. And if they're that big, then they are running that lab is probably running tests for many wineries that that corporation owns i know for sure that some of the large wineries that i've worked for have sent out for a lot of the biological identifying tests because the lab just isn't equipped i mean the lab that colby worked in is a very well equipped lab she's just not going to be able to run cell count numbers and stuff like that that equipment is just very expensive so they send out to these outside labs. And it just depends on the size of the winery and how often you're going to be running that test. If I'm going to be running a specific test for a month out of the year, there is no point in spending $30,000 on this machine, plus an extra $5,000 on maintenance every year, plus an extra however much on reagents or extra kits that you have to buy that are only good for a year. That's not going to that's not going to help us if I'm only running this test, whatever it may be, during harvest or for the month after harvest. It just depends on the winery and if they believe that this equipment is going to be worth it or not. Sometimes it may be worth it just to send it out and pay somebody else to run this test for you. And then also for research, if you are wanting to just do a trial and see like, I wonder if color for red wine, let's say that and we don't have that here at our winery. We'll just send it out, get a, get a number and just see the number just to look at it, just to see what we may be doing with it in the future. We may do that like once a year just to kind of see, monitor color, see if the color we're producing is the same every single year. 
And that especially yeah. from, sorry, from the winemaker's side, that like color, for example, there are things that we can do to adjust color. Like if your Pinot Noir is coming in super, super pink and light, and you want to get a little bit more color out of it as a winemaker during harvest, maybe I'll let that sit on skins a little bit more. Maybe I will macerate the skins during crush a little bit more, get it a little bit more of a, of a slurry because that's where that color comes out of, that sort of thing. So yeah, the Kobe's exactly right. Like if it's a test that you're kind of doing trials on or even when that going back to the smoke team that I could think of is some vineyards get it, some vineyards don't and they could literally be across the road from each other. And so as a winemaker, you're not going to invest in this multi-million dollar machine to see if you got it. And not to mention these labs that you utilize, they compile that data and refer back to their quantities and their numbers to make sure that that's a for sure thing. They get more solid numbers as they compile data from multiple wineries, multiple locations. So it does become useful at some point, especially with, I guess I would call it fairly new thing of smoke taint. And it's only getting worse. That has been for the last at least five years, the buzz, kind of the, the buzz subject of winemaking. And you can also use them just to double check to make sure that the equipment you're using is working properly. That's another part of being a lab tech is cleaning your equipment and making sure that it's operating properly. If I'm running pH or free sulfur, if I'm running free sulfur and I'm getting this number and I run it again and I get the same number, but maybe like one off and I keep basing my ads off of this number, but I send my samples to ETS and their numbers are five off, then you know that your equipment is not cleaned properly and not calibrated properly. You can buy reagents standards to kind of make sure that those numbers are right. But just having that outside source to double check your work is very helpful to have. And obviously you don't want to do that every week or every month. It's just, it's there in case you know that your numbers that you're getting are slightly off. That's part of being a lab tech is to make sure that you know the numbers and you know the why behind it. You want to know that these numbers make sense. If you're just producing these numbers and you're just entering them into the winemaking, wine tracking system without any other thought behind it, then the enologist, the seller master, assistant winemaker, whoever it is that's checking the work is going to wonder why my number is coming out negative when there's no way it can be negative. Part of being a lab tech is knowing the why behind these numbers as well. Or as a winemaker, assistant winemaker, I might adjust something based on those numbers, thinking my lab's got it. The trust has to be there. Labs, I, I and this is more on the analogy side, which we'll move into next, have to be precise and secure in their numbers. Like you got to know them. because as a winemaker, I'm going to look at that and go, okay, it's at this level. I need to adjust this. It's, this wine is at this many parts per million of sulfur. I got to adjust this. I have to, we got to make a move on this because it's going to spoil. If the equipment came out reading it was at 35 parts per million and I like to keep it at 60, I could do a 30 part ad when it really doesn't need to. And if we're going into bottling within the next month, that sulfur is not going to dissipate in time and it could be a big issue. There are things we could do to remove the sulfur. Obviously, less is more. If I don't have to use another reagent, another input on that wine to put it where we want to, then that's good and that's awesome for us. And so cleaning that equipment, making sure it's set, making sure it's calibrated every day, making sure that those calibrating reagents that we use aren't expired. And guess what? If they expire, then the numbers are going to be off. And if you use that same expired calibrating reagent for a week or, or two weeks and your numbers have been off for two weeks, that's a big deal and it's going to cause a lot of work. 
or we're going to cause some off flavors in our wine that as a winery, maybe even smaller wineries, we're not going to be able to afford to recover from as far as that goes. And that wine's going to taste completely different than what the winemaker's vision was for. Right. And these numbers, I feel, are very important. And most, if not all, wineries base their decisions off of these numbers. So not only is the cellar 90% cleaning, but so is the lab. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you may be surprised by that. I'm not. (laughs) You want to make sure that everything is clean every single day. Everything is running properly. Just like the cellar, take apart some of that equipment, put it back together, see how it works. I mean, to an extent. There are some things that you can't take apart in a lab without having the expert do it for you. If you if you use the dishwasher soap and your glasses now smell like soap, you're going to have different decisions when you're smelling, tasting your samples. You're going to go off of what you smell and what you taste. And if you taste bitter because of that soap, your decisions may affect the wine in the future and could ruin everything. It just depends. And especially with smaller wineries, every little thing counts. Or if there's a small crystallized piece of tartaric acid left over in a test tube that you pour your wine into before testing for tartaric acid, that is not a good representation because this equipment, especially like I'll say like the equipment that Colby uses, they use microliters of wine, literally half a drop of wine to test the entire lot of wine for whatever specific thing you're testing, like rateable acidity, you know? So that little, one little crystal in a test tube or in a sample bottle can change the whole environment of that wine. And so cleanliness, again, you're right. It's, we're back to it. We're back to cleaning again. (laughs) We'll always come back to the cleaning. That's for sure. So then aside from the lab analysis, Lab techs also do a little bit of cellar work that includes sample collection, depending on the time of the year. There may be a cellar person that does that for you, but most lab techs will collect their own samples and they do it like a specific way. You have to clear out that valve that you're going to pull from. You have to clear out the the sample cup you're going to use or bottle you're going to use. You want to make sure that there's nothing in there. And then there's a little bit of admin work depending on the winery. Lab techs will also do some data entry as well. And that's kind of the extent of their admin work is recording, making sure that every test you take, you do is written down somewhere and most likely entered into a wine tracking software as well. And then from a lab tech, one may be promoted to lab manager, supervisor. Again, this also depends on the winery size and the structure because this is where it kind of gets a little wonky. There may be lab tech to lab manager to enologist or straight from lab tech to enologist. There may not even be a lab manager or an enologist position. It depends on the winery. For myself, I went from lab tech to enologist and I am technically also the lab manager and the lab tech because I do it all at my winery right now, but I have the title of enologist. And let's talk real quick, enologist, because this might be a word that people haven't heard before necessarily, especially if you're And mispronounced. <laughs> right, right. Especially if you're outside, if you're outside the United States, they like to put an O in front of it. Enology is the study of wine. I assume it's Latin because or Greek, because that's usually where most of our words like that come from. But it just means 
the study of wine. And so this would be the person, obviously in the lab, we've moved that over to a title that says the person who studies the wine is basically what we're saying. The person who analyzes it gets the numbers and studies each of those wines. And so enologists can come out of, I, different than Kobe, went the school route and at least for wine. I mean, Kobe went to school for something completely different, but like we talked in the previous episode, but I went to school for enology. I studied wine in college. And so that was, that's what's on my degree and certificate. And so that is a route that can be taken. When I left college, I became an enologist. I got a job as an enologist. Kobe went from lab tech and, and learned how to be an enologist, which is great. Some enologists are better than the student, some of the students coming out of some universities with that because they've spent a year or two touching and doing and doing the enology, studying the wine. It also can be a mad scientist, which is what I usually get from people when they can't say enologist, mad scientist. The enologist is just another job that is usually split into seller, lab, and then admin as well. A lot of what the enologist does is tracking and quality control and verifying, double checking that the lab, the seller, packaging, everyone is working together and coming together to execute a perfect final product. We don't want any issues in between that. We want to make sure that what the seller is filtering into this tank is the same sample that the lab person is testing so that when the bottling is ready to package that, it's all the same wine. It's all been through this specific process and that it's ready to go. That enologist is the first, I call them the first line of defense. They, like Kobe was talking with the lab tech, knowing your numbers, right? They have to be able to see that stuff. And at any step in the wine process, from fruit on the vine, literally, because they're they're doing that, to bottling, they can, if they see something going wrong, one, if they don't say anything or don't help adjust anything, that's only going to get multiplied and get worse. And so they're the first line of defense, seeing those numbers, studying that wine, knowing oh crap, this seems to be getting off. So they, even if they don't tell anybody right away, they can put in the back of their mind or a notepad or whatever, check this wine next week. Let's see if that number continues to grow or whatever to make sure that it's not going to get to a point that's, you know, irreversible. Yeah. And they are also the bad guy sometimes where if they're testing for something specific before sending it to packaging and it doesn't pass, they're the ones that say, sorry, no, you cannot take this and bottle it because it may not be stable. It may not have this. You can't, you can't do it. And that it will might stop. not be legal. Yeah. And it will stop all production. And you're the bad guy. You have to say when you can and can't do something sometimes. And they're also the ones that do check throughout harvest. And if they do see something wrong, they're the ones that are the first ones to say something and double check. And it can be stressful. There's a lot that goes on behind that. And it's really hard being the bad person sometimes, especially with me coming from a smaller winery where I wasn't the one that said yes or no, or give the green light to now where everyone has to stop what they're doing and wait for me to give the okay. It's a big transition but it is also very, very important. So the lab seller side of the analogist is they conduct, analyze the lab, the quality control testing to ensure accuracy, precision of the data, and equipment performance. They also do what the lab tech does, depending on size of the winery. They may only double check the lab tech. 
just to make sure everything's running. They also are going to schedule maintenance if it needs to be done. That's on the admin side, anything like that. They need to know the equipment in and out as well. And then they will, they will also manage, coordinate wine samples, tastings, trials. They will put blending trials together. They will pull samples if they need to and have everything lined up, ready to go for tastings. And if something needs to have an ad, they're the ones that make that happen. Quality control is a very big thing. You want to make sure that everything is moving properly throughout harvest and after you want to double check all of your work. I know all of the wineries I have worked for have done some sort of like monthly QC where you're pulling samples, you're testing those samples roughly once a month to like six months, depending on the winery where they feel comfortable. It could be every three weeks. It could be exactly once a month. It could be every eight weeks, however the winemaker feels comfortable. And then they're checking mostly the acetic acid levels, making sure that there is enough free sulfur depending on the pH of the wine. They're also tasting those samples, making sure that maybe we need to do an acid trial, have this taste a little bit better. Maybe it needs this other specific trial. They, they do all of that as well. And then on the fun side, if your winery allows this or does this, there could be some more research and design or even on your own time as well. If you want to research different barrel profiles, oak profiles to see how that may show in your wine, you could try researching different types of yeast and see how maybe this one yeast will bring out more strawberry notes in your rosé, whereas this other yeast may bring out more watermelon notes, depending on the yeast. And then just finding new ways to ferment. I know that concrete eggs are a big thing. I have seen them. I have worked with a few of them. They are really cool. <laughs> and then some wineries will only do that. Some wineries will do half of their Chardonnay in barrel, half of their Chardonnay in stainless steel, and ferment those into different ways just to kind of see the profile of that wine. A lot of research goes behind winemaking just to ensure maybe better quality wine or better tasting wine in the future. Maybe there's an accident that happens that turns out to make your wine better. Accidents can be a good thing sometimes in, in winemaking and that somehow will maybe will make a whole new wine. I know I have a friend down in California who was making his own wine on his own time during harvest and accidentally put two different varietals together and ended up making this amazing wine that he's now bottling and selling for his own label. It was a huge accident, but it turned out to be this amazing thing. And I have yet to taste it, but he will be sending me a bottle pretty soon. So, <laughs> so he says. Yeah, I'm still waiting, but... <laughs> And then also running analysis to monitor wine maturity throughout harvest, before harvest, after harvest. And then depending on the winery, testing alcohol percentage, it's required to have the alcohol percentage on your packaging label for your winery. And so that has to be done. Some wineries, depending on the size, will just send it to ETS to have it tested there. But most wineries will have testing in-house. And then for the admin side, it's about 50-50 for the enologist, I would say. They're supervising through crush and fermentation processes. They are training lab techs. If you have lab interns for harvest, they are in charge of record keeping, making sure that all that analysis is up to date in their notebooks or their wine tracking software. And they also analyze 
and interpret the data that they see for winemakers. They make it easier for the winemakers during harvest is very important for winemakers to just come in, see these numbers, see this graph, make a decision and keep going because winemakers are very busy during harvest. The enologist, again, is like that first step. They make the graph, they see the graph, they understand why. They already have a game plan. So when the winemaker comes in, the enologist can say, this is what I see, this is what I think we should do. The winemaker gives the go ahead and then we move on. From there, the analogist will work with a lab budget most of the time and make educated propositions to keep lab efficient and up to date. If you have a piece of equipment and it hasn't had maintenance in a year or two years, the analogist will be the one that steps in and says, we need to do this. It's going to be this much. Yes, it's a lot of money, but we need to do it. And again, kind of being the bad guy, but also we want everything up to date and working properly because the lab is a very important part of the winemaking. And then also just ensuring that all wine is legal and ready to be packaged and communicate to everybody with the winemaking staff and the seller and that everything is ready to go. Right. And that's a big deal. The admin stuff, though, we're lucky enough in larger wineries, at least or smaller wineries, it's the same person. The assistant winemaker can help with some of those roles. They're kind of a good double checker because a lot of times I would be surprised to find an assistant winemaker that didn't serve in an enologist role very often. I, I think that most assistant winemakers have served in that role in some form or another at some point. And I definitely started a custom crush facility as an enologist. And so those admin things with that database, with those numbers, even the graphing, the assistant winemakers probably been there a little longer, knows what type of visualization the winemaker wants to see, especially during harvest, like Colby was saying. Winemakers, if you if you got a hundred different wines, you're going to want to come in, taste that wine, flip the notebook, visually see the numbers, see where it's been on that graph or whatever, and move on. You know, yep, it's on track to where it needs to go, or nope, let's make a note, let's adjust it. That's kind of how the busyness of harvest goes, especially when as a winemaker, assistant winemaker, you're sitting 13 to 16 hour days. But most wineries that make more than 2,000 cases have an assistant winemaker. And the assistant winemaker is quite the administrator. Most wineries require that an assistant winemaker has some sort of, I think most job postings I put they or I see, they want an enology or enology and viticulture degree or of something in the sciences. So they'll, you know, biological sciences, chemistry, those are assistant winemakers and enologists fit into that role pretty well because the assistant winemaker kind of is the second enologist. They need to be able to pull up in your database or your notebooks and see okay, from the science and lab side, this looks right, this looks wrong, or this is weird. Or I've seen some numbers that have been handed to me as an assistant winemaker where somebody told me, hey, this wine has 210 parts per million of sulfur in it. Nope, that's not possible. Let's go run that again. You know, they didn't know that possibly the person who was running the test, the lab tech or whatever, doesn't taught well enough or something and didn't necessarily know that wine couldn't or shouldn't have 210 parts per million or 200 parts per million. So the job of the assistant winemaker is super, super important. They are, I call them the conductor of the orchestra that is winemaking. Because without them, there's just chaos and noise. It sounds like the warm-up of a middle school band room. It is just annoying and will not function. You will never get a song produced. And so at this point, the assistant winemaker is not necessarily doing cellar work, but mostly 
they have the hands-on responsibility for managing and directing the production of the seller team. They are the ones that take the winemaker wants to do, the winemaker's overall vision for that wine. And they're the ones that have to break it down into the winemaking steps and go, okay, the winemaker wants this wine to be at this point. We're getting ready to package it. By the end of the month, we got to get it to this point. I, as the assistant winemaker, know we got to add some sulfur. We got to check that sulfur in a few days. And I'm going to write work orders for my seller master to disseminate or for the seller hands to do or for the lab. They're the person that's going to coordinate between what the physical work needs to be done in the cellar and what the tests that need to be ran in the lab. Some of that does go into the enologist. Like I said, there is some blurred lines there. Sometimes the enologist will hand over to the assistant winemaker for a double check or whatever and go, hey, this ad needs a sulfur. And then this is my pre-week will go, okay, she'll hand it over to the seller master or to the seller hands. She will direct who's going to actually add that the physical sulfur to the wine and do it properly and correctly because you got to mix it in and all that kind of stuff. They, they work proactively with and for the winemaker. They're their assistant. They're the person that goes, I know that the winemaker likes this this way. I have to go make sure because at a certain point, the winemaker is going to go, hey, assistant, how come this doesn't look this way? And I got 13 other things and a meeting in five minutes with the owners and I need to do this now. And it's not set up and ready to go. Like Obi was saying, maybe they have a specific way they want to taste through an acid trial. Maybe they like to go from highest to lowest or lowest to highest or they have to have a control there in order to taste back to what it is at compared to where they're going, that sort of thing. Just knowing those things, you're there to make the winemaker's job easier as the assistant. And that's what all assistants' jobs kind of are. They are responsible for wine product quality. They're the initial tasting and tester and viewer of the overall big picture data. You got to have a kind of a big picture mentality when you're getting to this point in winemaking. You have to be able to go, these grapes are coming in. They're at this percentage of sugar. I already know in my head what I want that, the numbers and color and everything else that I want that wine to be be at. That's a big deal. And it's a big difference because you're going to have a really pale wine or juice when you crush it. It's going to look very light colored because the juice is clear and the grape skins hold all the color. But you've got to know as the assistant winemaker, this is what we're going for. You know, even as an assistant, I would recommend to my winemakers sometimes, hey, I think we should let that sit on skins a couple more days. If you look at last year's, it was quite a bit darker. I think we should wait because the winemaker's got every single wine in his head and every vintage that he's worked for that winery in his head. And he's got, you talk about your picture keeps getting bigger and bigger. The assistant is looking at keeping that vintage where those varietals should be. The winemaker is kind of that person of the story of the winery. I need it to line up with all the other Cabernet Sauvignons that I've produced as a winemaker. And what my profile is as the winemaker, the assistant needs to know the winemaker's tasting profile. They need to be able to go, hey, seller, I can already tell you this needs to be adjusted. Or proactively, like we we're talking about, hey, enologist, let's go ahead and already set up an acid trial. I know he's going to ask for one. That way, if we have it ready to go when he steps in, bingo, he's more happy and he's ready to go. The assistant winemakers, a lot of times, will deal with wine movements, recording that, making sure that's done properly, making sure that they get in the right tanks, making sure this happened. I saw it happen. That 
when you're going from multiple tanks and blending into a big tank because it's all going to be packaged the same, the wrong tank isn't sent instead. If you're blending Cabernet Sauvignon and somebody sends in your nice high-end Pinot Noir into that Cabernet Sauvignon, you can't get it back. It's over. So making sure like on your work orders, being detailed enough, knowing where those tanks are going to go. And also for the efficiency of the overall winery, knowing if I keep all my Pinot Noirs in one section and all my cabs in one section, then that's going to make it easier for my seller hands who might be more in tune with getting the job done than paying attention to what's getting done. So that's the assistant. That's what they need to do. Uh, assistants deal with budgets and finances. They're going to be the person that's going to get at least the dry good inputs or harvest and throughout harvest. You know, if you run out of tartaric acid during harvest, there's only going to be one person responsible for that. And that's going to be the assistant winemakers in charge of ordering that stuff. That is on them. The same with uh, at a lot of smaller wineries. And by smaller, I'm talking 30,000 cases and below. They're the person that's going to be ordering the bottles, the boxes. Maybe they're the person that's looking at the submission for label approvals through the TTB here in the United States. Other places, whatever alcohol control board that they have, I think pretty much every country as a label control. And so they might be the person doing that. A lot of times that's probably going to be the one, but they're going to do all those audits or they're going to direct lab techs and enologists sometimes will also be helping coordinate that inventory of those dry goods that we need. I say it's really good to have a good working relationship with your enologist as an assistant winemaker because they kind of are, I don't want to say they're your assistant or your right-hand man, they're definitely your partner, though. You guys have to be on the same page. Yeah. And where I work now, I am the enologist and I do work hand in hand with the assistant winemaker. Every single day, we are talking before our morning meeting with everybody else, after the morning meeting with everybody else, and just throughout the day to verify that we're on the same page at all times. And if there is something that I need, I go to her. And if there's something that she needs, she comes to me. And it's nice that our offices are right next to each other so we can just yell across the room. But we also text each other throughout the weekend or after work or whatever it is. We try to be one cohesive person together to work together. And we kind of interchange our jobs when we need to. And it does help that she knows analogy and lab. So if I go to her for anything, she can do it. And then for the most part, vice versa, if she needs me to do something that is part of her job, I can do that as well. And just kind of assuming our next steps, like we're there for each other to assist each other. If I know I'm writing a work order for sulfur and I know that we are going to be low on sulfur, I'll write that work order for her, but I'll give her a heads up saying, Hey, I wrote this work order, but I know we are not going to have enough will you order it? Or I'll tell her that I will order it for her so she doesn't have to do it too. So we don't get double the amount. It's kind of just depending on where you work. Again, (laughs) it is important to work with the person next to you very, very closely. And the assistant winemaker is that person that you go to for anything. If the seller hands or the seller master needs something, they go to the assistant winemaker. If the lab tech needs something, they go to the assistant winemaker. If I need something, I go to the assistant winemaker. They're kind of the top of the umbrella in in a way. Heck, let's be honest. If the winemaker needs something, they're going to go to the assistant winemaker. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. 
Thank you guys so much for listening to this first episode on winery jobs. We will continue our discussion on winery jobs next week with winemaker, as well as how these jobs and positions might change during harvest. If you would like to email us with any suggestions, please email us at grape2glasspod, at gmail.com. And we will answer those when we can. If you can, please subscribe and rate us on your podcasting app or iTunes or Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to it. We just thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you guys next week.